Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 67. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. You know, I've probably said no less than once a month, I'm finally at this point. Whether it was Halloween reviews, Christmas reviews, Endgame, and doing Marvel reviews, although I will say I have been very excited, kind of quietly excited, I should say, to get to this point where we are just a couple of weeks away from the release of Star Wars Episode Nine, The Rise of Skywalker, and therefore we are launching into our review of what I call Phase 3 of the Star Wars trilogy, the new trilogy, the first trilogy that Disney made. How's that for a warm-up act? I feel like your excitement for this was tempered with your excitement to go to Savi's. Yeah. Like, there's only so much Star Wars you can focus on. Plus, you also had a Ghostbusters trailer drop yesterday. You have been a little scattered. I have been in nerd heaven for the last 24 hours. I wish I could sit here and pontificate about my love for the Ghostbusters trailer and all of the Easter eggs. You do every week. You compare something in a Disney movie to either Batman or Ghostbusters. You know, I, let's not talk. Let's not say that you have not pontificated. Well, actually, and and you know what, I can actually harken back to this movie because when they started doing the marketing for this movie, and we got the first teaser trailer and then the first full trailer they were kind of reaching out to the fans that had been with these films for so long and they were showing us images that we were familiar with characters we were familiar with while also introducing new stories and the Ghostbuster trailer did do that and I dare say I think they kind of tried to copy the Star Wars formula. The difference is we didn't get to see any of the original um, cast in this first trailer. I do believe in the next trailer we will, but I do think that they are drawing a lot of influence from Star Wars because I feel that the fan bases are sort of similar. Well, you know what's nice sometimes about, you know, not shoving sequels down your fans' throats is that... When 10 plus years go by, you can kind of stretch the trailer out a little bit and introduce the new story and then drop your nostalgia as opposed to, here it is, give us your money. Yeah, neither one uh, of those trailers, Ghostbusters Afterlife, by the way, love the title, or... Star Wars The Force Awakens. You need to find a friend and do another podcast. Neither one of them did have that cash grabby feel. But I mentioned no, just now I will give both of them that. Yeah. I mentioned just now that <clears throat> both um sorry, my voice is kind of in and out because of all the screaming yesterday from uh the Ghostbusters Afterlife trailer. Did I talk about the Ghostbusters Afterlife trailer? Um I mentioned that both fan bases are sort of similar um in that I do believe that it it does cater to people who have the same interests when it comes to film. Um, And a lot of people grew up with both franchises. Like I, for example, 
my favorite film growing up was Ghostbusters. I've said it on the show a hundred times. I hadn't heard. But, but the other two franchises that I was in love with were Back to the Future and Star Wars. Again, all three of those movies kind of live in the same universe when you talk about fan bases. And my dad was a big Star Wars fan, and I remember being familiar with the movies because I saw Star Wars for the first time when I was six years old. Um, Because I had always sort of associated it with those... um, The movie with the uh, laser swords was what I used to call it when I was like five years old. And the robots... And then when we knew that we were going to go to Disney World in 1994, my dad, I remember, we went out and we spent the weekend. We went to a video store. You used to go to a video store and rent VHS tapes for our younger audience. We went to Northport Video and we got the entire Star Wars trilogy, the original Star Wars trilogy, episodes four, five, and six, took the weekend and watched them all in chronological order. And that was my first foray into Star Wars. And then going... Oh, wait, wait. Now you're talking about chronological order. At the time... It was just the four movies. Right. Oh, sorry, so just you... the three movies. Uh, so, you're, yeah, you're going the original trilogy order of release. A New Hope, The Empire Strikes Back, and um, Return, Return of, the, of Jedi. the Jedi. Because the, the second trilogy, of which two of the three movies are unspeakably bad... Did not come out until much later. Right. But we watched the original trilogy. My dad had, and still has, an original pressing of the Star Wars soundtrack on vinyl. And he used to play it in the house because we had a record player. But we watched the videos, and then we went to the MGM Studios, and I went on Star Tours. And when we came back from that trip, it's not that I took Ghostbusters and Back to the Future and put it to the back seat, but I was I was all in on Star Wars, more so than I had ever been. But I think the difference between Star Wars and Ghostbusters and Back to the Future is that Ghostbusters and Back to the Future both had Saturday morning cartoons and Star Wars didn't. I think there's also a lot more for kids to latch on to, especially with Ghostbusters, just because there's so many visuals that are so appealing. Yeah. That's not to say that with the other two franchises there aren't, but I feel like you're going to gravitate more towards like Slimer and Marshmallow Man than you are towards a Stormtrooper. And also, if you think about the way that the toys were marketed as well, Back to the Future and Ghostbusters were late 80s and 90s, whereas Star Wars was 70s. So you're you're marketing to two different generations, really. Right. And it wasn't until our parents' generation started having us as children. Exactly. That Star Wars started to cycle around again. Because I feel like it was almost like a, a cult following for a while. Like in the very early 90s. Right before it kind of launched into... Because I remember in the mid-90s is when they started coming out with the special edition expanded Lucas director's cut digitally remastered VHS tapes and they came in the gold box set. And that's when I remember really seeing the toys. 
uh, the action figures. I had the big Millennium Falcon. My brother and I had the Stormtrooper cannons. We had the lightsabers. But I felt like that wasn't something that was a, that was as popular in the early 90s. But the market was being flooded with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, Back to the Future, Ghostbusters. And when those trends kind of started to fade out, that's when Star Wars was able to swoop in and take back their rightful place in, in the universe. And... That's around the same time that the uh, new trilogy got launched, which is where your Star Wars story, unfortunately, begins. Yes, that is where my love-hate relationship with Star Wars began. Phantom Menace came out when we were like 12, 13 years old. And at the time, that was when, you know, like you're in middle school and you stop hanging out at your friends' houses and it gets to be that age where, like, you're getting dropped off at the mall or the movies. Right. So Phantom Menace was actually the first movie that I saw with a group of friends. And I remember I wasn't blown away with it. Because, Nobody was. Well, exactly. It was my first foray into Star Wars. I mean, I obviously I knew what Star Wars was. I had... You know, I knew Darth Vader and Luke, I am your father and all that kind of stuff, of course. But I had never seen any of the original trilogy at this point. Right. Um, so I definitely wasn't blown away with it because even then I recognized that it was not the most groundbreaking CGI. And I wasn't really at all invested into the characters. But I remember enjoying it, thinking like, yeah, I could get into this. But I think because of the experience that I had being out with my friends, that was like my bigger takeaway. Um, so after that, I never really did get into it. Um, in high school, tried again. I think I watched, I don't they used to run the marathon. So it was probably either... A New Hope or Emperor. I don't even remember what it was, but I, I watched one of them because it was on and it just didn't take. It wasn't that I wasn't interested in it. It just, it just didn't grab me. And I was, I was totally fine with that. Then I get to college and as we have discussed on this show before, I went to film school. So at this point, like you said, Star Wars was making its comeback and it wasn't necessarily considered that nerd culture anymore because it was becoming retro chic. So it was starting to become mainstream, but because I was in film school, it was all I heard about. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to have to watch one of these movies now and understand what all these people are talking about. And especially because I was always kind of a guy's girl too. I was like clueless going into college. So I sat down and I watched A New Hope and I became more focused on the world and the characters and trying to commit everything to memory than I was on the story, which is what makes Star Wars so good. And I lost the most important aspect of it. So by that point, I was just like, you know what? I tried. I can't get into this. And that's totally fine with me. And I'm going to live in a world where I'm on the outside and I don't care about Star Wars. And I was totally at peace not having to like it, especially because most of said guys that I went to film school with all fancied themselves the next Spielberg or the next Lucas. And I couldn't like 
deal with all of that ego. So I was fine living in my Star Wars free bubble. And then Disney had to go and ruin all of this for me by acquiring the IP. And here we are, cut to now. I think that College Jackie would beat me up right now because I have spent $200 on an expensive toy for a boy. But we would protect you from College Jackie with that lightsaber. (laughs) I walked right into that. Yes, you did. Maybe I use the force. You are going to buy me this lightsaber. You will watch Star Wars. You will watch Ghostbusters. I'm going to hit you with that lightsaber. It is uh, within arm's reach. Yeah, I know. Well, (laughs) by the end of this episode, the clunk that you will have heard was the lightsaber on Sean's head. Hit me if you must. Protect the saber. Please don't touch the proton pack. 2015, we finally get the release of the first Star Wars film that was released by Disney. Of course, it's it's under Lucasfilm, but owned by Disney. And interestingly enough, also J.J. Um, Abrams. It's not George Lucas directing. And I have to be honest with you, I think that was a good idea. I think that was a good idea. George Lucas made three phenomenal Star Wars movies, one good Star Wars movie, and the other two you can throw in the garbage. But I think that to go into this new trilogy, I think you needed fresh ideas. I think you needed a more contemporary take, a more modern take on Star Wars. Because here is the part of the problem with the second trilogy, phase two as I'll call it, other than the fact that the movies are unwatchably bad. They, because the stories are, the stories are okay. They're very convoluted. The characters, again, are okay. Terribly overacted, but it's the CGI. In, in a large part of why those movies, the first two, episode one and episode two, why they failed so much, the CGI in both are unwatchably bad. And I think that's because a lot of the effects that you saw in the original trilogy were practical effects. Mm-hmm. They were sets. They were puppets. Um, you had never seen anything like it before. Mind-blowing. But I will die on the hill that I think CGI is horrendous in general. I think we rely on it far too much. So for George Lucas, who made the first trilogy... I think he looked at the second trilogy as the opportunity to build this world that he technically could not build in 1977. And I think it went too far. Yeah, no, and I know when you're talking about the CGI, you're not just talking about Jar Jar Binks in particular. It's... It's it's everything. It looks like a video game. So much of it looks like a video game. It's just so bad. But um, I agree with you. I think it was a smart choice getting a new director... Um, because I think Lucas told his story. Yes. And I feel like, in a way, it might have also been very difficult for him to have passed this over to Disney. And it's one thing to watch it play out, knowing that somebody else did it. And now it's like, all right, I've fully passed the torch. But to still be involved as a director and probably not have as much creative freedom as 
you once did with your characters and your property and to have to answer to somebody for your own property, I imagine that would be very, very difficult. So I think this was probably the best decision for everybody. And there were a lot of people, and I'm sure Lucas included, even though he was sitting on his pile of billions, that were cautiously optimistic because so many people I know went, oh, they're going to Disney-fy Star Wars. Mickey Mouse is going to be in Star Wars, which is like the most nearsighted criticism you could have of of a film franchise that's acquired by Disney. Especially because they've already gotten into Marvel at this yeah. point. How much Mickey Mouse is in Marvel? No. Well, there's a couple of hidden ones, actually, which I love that they do. But it's they're not colorful they're not flowery movies they're still gritty films you know what's funny though talking about the disneyfication of this they were considering brad bird to be the director uh but he was already tied up in tomorrowland i think it was a good idea go for with J. J. all abrams. parties involved listen we know what jj abrams has done in his career we saw what he did for star trek we saw what he did in super eight we we a lot of people are familiar with his work when he did Lost for ABC. I think this was the right idea. I think this was the right direction to go in. And, you know, it, it's like anything else because you're seeing it now. We have the last well, the last Jedi came out. We have the Rise of Skywalker coming and you have guys sitting in there. And I hate to I hate to generalize, but you've got guys sitting in their basement with Cheeto dust on their fingers who have keyboard courage, attacking films that haven't come out yet. They did the same thing with this movie. And by and large, this movie won a lot of people over. I remember we went to go see it the night it came out, and the lights came down, the Lucasfilm logo came up, and a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And I said, even I said to myself, please don't suck right before the music started. And it's not because I didn't have faith in Disney, but it's that I didn't have a lot of faith in Star Wars because of what the second trilogy had been. Right. And there is something to be said for really taking your time before putting out a sequel and coming up with a solid story. So with all that being said, we're finally going to get into The Force Awakens but we are going to do this as a linear review because it is Star Wars, because it is so involved. There's a lot going on here. This takes place 30 years after the original trilogy, episodes 4, 5, and 6. We are on the planet Jakku, where we meet Poe Dameron, a pilot for the Resistance. He has a map that leads to the whereabouts of Luke Skywalker, and he hides them in a droid, a BB unit called BB-8. The village that he is in is invaded by Kylo Ren and his First Order Stormtroopers. These are basically the remnants of the Empire, and this is what has been developed. And Poe Dameron is then captured by the First Order. They then destroy the village and kill everyone in the village, much to the dismay of a conflicted stormtrooper, serial number FN-2187. I want to talk about the open of this film. This is as brutal an attack as we have seen in a Star Wars movie. Actually, it does remind me of um, Anakin's mother's death because it's that little village and nobody cares about killing the civilians. Right, and then we see 
uh, the, the, to a much smaller scale because it's not an entire village. But in A New Hope, we see Owen and Peru are burned to death. Right. When they are trying to find Luke Skywalker and he's off with Obi-Wan Kenobi. So we, it's not that we haven't seen this imagery before, but it's on this scale. Other than maybe um, when... Uh, Anakin Skywalker, but again, you don't see it when he kills the children that are training to be Jedis when he finally makes the turn to the dark side in totality. But to see an attack on a village, this is as brutal as it gets. But I have to say, when Kylo Ren, and there was a lot of um, criticism before the movie even came out, because we didn't really know who Josh Driver was. Adam. Or Adam Driver, I'm sorry. We didn't know who Adam Driver was. And people in production stills, for whatever reason, didn't buy him as a villain. And I think it's because they've seen the Emperor and he's got that morbid, decrepit, deformed face. When we finally see Darth Vader take his mask off, same thing. And... Adam Driver really didn't have that going on. He, in a way, it's kind of funny because he was in the military before he was an actor. Right. He does, with especially with the long hair, has a little bit of a baby face. So there was. A but lot he's of, also very stoic at the same time. Right. But um, there were people that were skeptics of him going into the film, and when he says "kill them all," and they just level that village, I thought. This is a great introduction to this new villain, who we otherwise don't know anything about up to this point. Right. And I don't want to get too far ahead, but I think the baby face will come into play later when you find out who he really is. But yeah, I think it was a great casting choice. And what I like about it, too, is that I think Adam Driver does such a great job of talking whether he's in the mask or out of the mask, he's just got this menacing quality about him. You know, he just did this terrible thing and it's completely unmotivated. So you know he's going to be crazy evil. Right. And I think that they had to do that because, you know, maybe it does play into the baby face thing a little bit, but you also have to establish him as worse than Darth Vader because I think the comparison is going to be natural. So you kind of have to give him his own legs to stand on. Yeah. Um, what I also really like that they did here was that they changed the rebellion to the resistance and the empire to the first order. So you kind of do get that passing of the torch, but they, they do stand on their own now. They stand on their own. In this franchise. In their franchise. And even if you are not totally familiar with the Star Wars universe, if you don't know all the canon involved in putting these films together, you can still follow what this is. And I thought that, without spoiling my review, I think this movie in totality did a really good job of that. Let me just say that right now. Without it becoming too formulaic. Because you have the villain with the mask on and he's talking through the voice box. And he's got the red lightsaber because that's, that's his kyber crystal. That's the lightsaber he's going to have because he is on the dark side. But then you get Poe Dameron. And Poe Dameron, again, great introduction because... Immediately likable. Immediately likable because he's so tongue-in-cheek. He's not taking Kylo Ren seriously. It's very funny. 
it's very telling of the character. He's sarcastic. He's a pilot. So of course now you start thinking, oh, there's our Han Solo. So I can see where I can see where people early on in the viewing their first viewing of this movie, myself included, started saying, "Don't be a match for everything." Or you could even compare that to the second trilogy because the Resistance sent their best pilot, just like they sent Qui Gon Jinn. Right, in in a way, I, I, yeah, and I I get that. Um, the bloody stormtrooper. That's new. Yeah. that's Now, that's strong imagery because you get the bloody handprint streaking down that white helmet. It's a striking visual because even when Luke Skywalker had his hand cut off by Darth Vader, it's not bloody. And I think we all just assume that these are laser cannons, they're lightsabers. It's so hot that your wound is just singed shut. So I remember this was something that was striking in the trailers that I had seen, and it was striking to me when we see this film, not just for the first time, but even up to this point. Right, because you can kind of assume that the lightsaber, like, cauterizes it. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting, too, you know, we're talking about the Disneyfication of Star Wars. Now you are starting to see the blood. But even... You know, and this might also be like a product of the time period. I feel like with your original trilogy, yes, you see a lot of fighting, but it's the lightsaber fighting. It's a lot of lasers and stormtrooper guns and things like that. You don't see a lot of hand-to-hand combat. And I feel like that's what Disney really introduced more than anything else. Like you're saying with the blood now, but even if you think, you know, we're going to do Force Awakens and Last Jedi leading into the new release, and eventually we'll circle back around to Rogue One and and Solo. You know, we're going to stick to all the Disney ones. Um, But I feel like in Rogue One and Solo, they feel more like war movies. Well, they're very gritty, especially Rogue One. Yes. Especially Rogue One. But this immediately does have the look and feel of a Star Wars movie because... The costumes are the same. The architecture, even in this first scene that's at night, that's all very familiar. And I have to say, I love the swipes. I love the transitions. Those very 70s swipes and fades. I love that they kept them. Nope. I hated that they kept them in the 90s, and I hate them even more now. They need to go the way of Dutch angles. They don't work, and you can't cut against them. I disagree. We have to stop using them. We do not. We do not. You may as well hold up a sign that says, hey, look, you're watching a movie. But that's... No. Yes. No, it takes you out of it. We're going to agree to disagree on this one. No, it doesn't. Editing, it's a cut. You match the frame to the one before it. Star Wars A New Hope was nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars with those swipes. They didn't know any better. In the 80s, they got worse. Just let them go. No and no, and you're wrong. This looks like an 80s music video. That's the point. It's all supposed to live in the same universe. This is part of pandering to fans of the franchises. This goes back to what we just discussed with the whole Ghostbusters thing. This is a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, and that's where these wipes need to go. No, they can live They can live in this galaxy. No. I embrace them. Well, then, 
after we get back. God, I that was headache. And that was just the first scene. Where's uh, that lightsaber? Um, we then meet Ray, a scavenger, who finds BB-8. And I love Ray. I love the introduction to Ray. I love the fact that, first off, similar to the swipes, she feels like a throwback Star Wars character. The look, the feel, the attitude. And I think that Daisy Ridley is perfect casting. I agree with the perfect casting, but I disagree that she feels like a Star Wars character. I mean, she does, and I love the aesthetic of Rey, but here's where she doesn't feel like a Star Wars character to me. Prior to Rey, we've had Princess Leia, obviously. And for as strong a character as Princess Leia is, that doesn't take away from the fact that at one point she's Jabba's slave and they have her in a bikini. Then you have Natalie Portman as Queen Amidala. And while they didn't make her too va-va-voom, there are points where, you know, she's in a dress where her whole back is exposed or her belly is exposed or whatever. Now, I'm not trying to get up on the feminist soapbox here. However, this is the first really strong, non-sexy female that we've had in Star Wars. And that's not to say, I'm not saying that Daisy Ridley is not pretty. She is. But I'm saying as a strong female character, she's really the first one that we've had where you're, where you're really giving girls a role model. Because she can be pretty in her own sense. She can be dirty. She can be dressed as a peasant without a bikini, without her midriff. I, I get what you're saying. Exactly. And, you know, she's smart and she's really creative and really resourceful. And you get all of that right away. At the same time, they are pulling, like, I mean, that's it. She's... She's a Jedi. They are pulling from like Luke's wardrobe almost. And I read that they went back to some of his early costume designs. Oh, yeah. And that's how they created her wardrobe. And, and similarly, she's a conflicted character. She's young. She's ambitious. She's she got wants, a little chip on her shoulder, she too. She wants more than what she has. She's special. She's different. And she wants to be, she wants to get on a ship and fly away. It's very similar. In fact, it's the exact same thing in many ways to Luke Skywalker. So again, there's the fear that this is going in a formulaic sort of way. But this is where my love-hate relationship with Star Wars did turn to love because of Rey. Yeah. Like, that is how much I like this character. And for the first time, I feel like I had somebody to relate to in these movies and that's what totally flipped the switch for me. She's an incredibly strong character. She is a conflicted character. She's what this franchise needed. I love that she's a scavenger and a star destroyer. I think it's a great throwback. I love that her ragdoll when you see her living in the Adat it is a rebellion fighter pilot. I love that she puts the pilot helmet on and it's 
it's sort of childish. Like she's sitting there with just like stuffing her face with her food with this oversized helmet on like a kid. Yeah. It's this childish innocence about her that that makes you connect with her immediately. But there also is like out of the gate, like, you know, she's special. You there, there's some sort of sense of adventure, but they do really tie it up in a nice bow. Like you said, that she's living in the ad and that's your, you know, where they start to sprinkle the nostalgia in. Absolutely. But it's done very tastefully. It doesn't feel like you're getting hit over the head with all the backstory. Yeah, you don't feel like you're watching a toy commercial or or that you're watching some fan-made film, per se. Well, back on the First Order ship, Kylo Ren uses the Force to get the location of BB-8 out of Poe, and they decide to set off back to Jakku, but not before FN-2187 decides to break Poe free, and they escape on a TIE fighter, which is eventually shot down and it crashes on Jakku after they fight their way to freedom. And during the fight, Poe decides to give FN-2187 a proper name and he calls him Finn. After the crash, Finn fears Poe is dead and leaves the scene of the crash as he is now on the run. I like their escape that they make. And I like the relationship that is immediately developed between Poe and Finn. Yeah, I mean, we said it before that Poe is immediately likable. And that's taken one step further here because they form this bond right away before they even know each other's name. And it's so funny how they're being fired at. And it's just like, nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. Yeah. And I think we've all had friends in our life where... You become friends very quickly, and maybe you give them a nickname right away, or you abbreviate their name like someone says, my name's Jennifer, and you immediately go, oh, okay, you're, you're Jenny. You know what I'm saying? Like, it just comes so naturally, almost in a, I don't want to, I don't mean childish in a negative connotation, but it's just how, as a kid, sometimes you can just become a friend with somebody just because you want to be friends with them, just because you like them out of the gate. And that's sort of the way that I felt their relationship started. And I remembered when I, like, watching this reminded me of when I was a kid, like, in kindergarten, just making a friend for the sake of making a friend. And some of them are still friends to this day. Well, in this case, it's a little different because they're making an escape and they're being shot at. So you have to have that trust immediately. But it's like... I guess it speaks a lot to Poe's character because he's like, nah, I don't like that name. I'm going to call you Finn. Yeah. He just seems like very, like just such a, such a natural leader. Like you just want to, you, you want to blindly follow him because you can trust him. And it's juxtaposed on, you have this, this tremendous fight going on, but, but they're like smiling at each other. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, their backs are turned as they're flying away, but they're smiling. They're like, yeah, Finn, I like that. <laughs> yeah. Nice to meet you, pup. Nice to meet you too, Finn. Like they're like they're so happy, yeah, to be a part of this. Well, I think part of it is because they know that they what they just got away with. Yeah, it's also at this point that I think to myself, Finn is always out of breath because we see him pull his helmet off after the first scene, and he's breathing heavily, and then he's breathing heavily after he wakes up from the crash. And I just remember that was parodied so many times because 
you saw that visual of him being out of breath in almost every single trailer. You know, I never really picked up on that. And now I'm very curious if it was an actor's choice or because he might not just not have had time to get in shape because a lot of these guys found out they were cast before they were going into the table read. Like this movie was so heavily kept under wraps that when they went into audition, I think they did it to Oscar Isaac, too. They held him in his hotel room and it was like, yeah, if we cast you, you're going to go to work immediately. If not, you're getting a plane ticket back to L.A. Wow. Just like that. Just like that. That's crazy. I'd see that I never knew. But it makes sense, though. It makes sense, especially now, because they had an issue where one of the actors forgot his script for the rise of Skywalker in his hotel room. Somebody found it, put it up on eBay and Disney went on eBay and bought it back. (laughs) How funny is that? That's amazing. Because they're trying to protect everything. Now who knows? Can't get Mickey and Minnie's train right open. Yeah. Who knows? This person might've made photocopies of this script. I'm sure they read through it. I would like to think if I had my, uh, no, if I had my hands on it, I probably wouldn't. Because I, I want to be surprised when I see the movie. But not everybody thinks that way. Well, anyway, um, after he is on the run, this is Finn, that is, on Jakku, he later finds Rey in BB-8. But before he can give her the entire story of who he is, where he came from, and what is happening, the First Order attacks. And they steal the Millennium Falcon from the local junkyard And they escape. I love, there's a lot that I love about this scene. You know, speaking of relationships that develop, I love what happens between Ray and BB-8. You know, he's like a loyal dog following her around. He just attaches himself to her. And she can't really shake him because she feels bad for him. Um, Even more so, I love that Finn has declared his allegiance to the Resistance Kind of almost by accident because, you know, he's trying to talk his way out of a situation. He's like, yeah, yeah, I'm with the resistance. I'm with the resistance. And he, you know, draws that line in the sand. It's great. Yeah. And I love the line of what about this one? And she goes, that one's garbage. And then the ship that they wanted to take is blown up and they go, the garbage it is. And they get on the Millennium Falcon. What a yay moment. What a yay moment for all of us. I have to say. As back and forth as I was on Star Wars up to this point, and as much as I want to hit you with a lightsaber, even I got a lump in my throat when they cut back to the Falcon for the first time. And it's like I said, they very tastefully placed the nostalgia. But at this point, what was really smart, too, is that they've given us all of these new characters and they've fleshed them out so quickly because we're not that far into the movie at this point. But they've given us so many reasons to care about these characters that, like, your heart's in it. So, yeah, by the time you see the Falcon, even me, who was, like, lukewarm up to this point, was like, all right, yeah, here we go. Yeah, let's get on. I'm ready to go. It's funny that you mentioned how BB-8 is almost dog-like because I do love how he emotes. I think he's very funny. And that is shown specifically in the scene where they're escaping on the Millennium Falcon and he's just firing cables out to dangle in midair because he's tired of getting tossed around as Ray is trying to figure out how to fly this thing for the first time. Yeah, he was like a hamster in a wheel for a while until he threw those cables out. And the relationship with her and Finn 
it, it, as odd as it is to say, it's almost sibling-like, at least in her eyes. Stop taking me by the hand. And they <laughs> bicker a little bit, but clearly, like, he's got an attraction to her. And, again, very tongue-in-cheek. He's like, oh, where do you got to go? Do you have a boyfriend, a cute boyfriend? Yeah. Like, <laughs> and I think that some of the humor in this is what rubbed people the wrong way when they say the Disney-fied versions of these films. Because other than Yoda, in a lot of what he does when you see him for the first time, Star Wars isn't really a comedy. And it, this is not a comedy either, but you get more laughs out of these movies than you ever did out of the original trilogy. I think they were maybe taking a little bit of a page from what they were doing with Marvel, where yeah. it is very serious and heavy at times, and you do make it a little bit more lighthearted. Yeah. I have to say, Ray scores even more brownie points with me at this point, not just because she's trying to like shake Finn off and, you know, she's so super independent and she's obviously not, you know, she's obviously not accustomed to having anybody help her. But she just goes and proves what a bad bee she is because she's a Jedi and she's piloting the Falcon and you needed two men to do those things throughout an entire other trilogy. All right. First off, she's not a Jedi yet. So let's calm down. Oh, she's got the Force. She does, but she's not a Jedi yet. She doesn't even know that she's got the Force yet. Let's dial back a little bit. I will give you credit, though. Whereas you, ha you, you did have Han Solo and Chewie flying the Millennium Falcon, yes, she was able to do pilot and co-pilot on her own. That and she embodies both Luke and Han's. She's got the desire to move on and better herself and see the adventure that is out there, much like Luke, as I said before. But she does have the attitude at times, not all the time, not the sarcasm, but she does have the attitude and the desire to pilot just like Han Solo. So, yes, that's I will give not you that. what I'm saying. I'm saying never send a man to do a woman's job. Let's move on. All right. Slow your roll a little bit. <laughs> Han Solo never had a problem flying the Millennium Falcon. Let's calm down here. We, we're not going to trivialize Han Solo. This podcast is going to end awful quick. <laughs> and I'm not just talking about this episode. I'm talking I'm going to shut the server down if we start to trivialize or minimalize Han Solo. No, no, no. This, this is why we're just doing the Star Wars under Disney. I, I am not messing with the original trilogy. No. Like I said, I went to film school and I'm not stupid. Well, later on, the Falcon is captured by a large ship. Who's flying that large ship? Well, that would be Han Solo <laughs> and Chewbacca. To this day... I still get chills. I still get chills when they arrive. And I not only had a lump on my throat, but tears streaming down my face. When that first trailer came out, Chewie, we're home. Oh my God. And I, you know that it's coming. You know that the scene is coming. Because you've seen the trailer. And even up to this point in time, because I've seen the movie a hundred times. 
And I still, the hair on my neck and arms stand every time they enter that Millennium Falcon. What I love most about this is the way that the worlds collide because Ray and Finn and BB-8 are still on the ship and they're, well, they're in the Falcon and they're hiding. Um, You know, they very easily could have set this up where, and I guess that's kind of what poses a lot of questions for me. I mean, they they do give you the timeline of how Han lost the Falcon in the first place and it eventually ended up on Jakku. But, I kind of like that of all the places Ray could have flown the Falcon and she could have like crash landed somewhere and then run into Han and Chewie. They set it up this way where they managed to track their ship down and overtake them. And, you know, they just pit them all against each other immediately. What I really like, too, about the return of Han, you know, you and I have had this conversation a bunch of times is like. We have all these bands that we've grown up on you know a lot of them you could argue was like our parents music and they raised us on classic rock and there's a bunch of people that we want to see that are now either retiring or dead and it's like we've never seen the rolling stones and i had always wanted to but i'm kind of like uh i don't know that i really want to go see mick jagger do his thing anymore because now it just seems sad and it's like Even 10 years ago, that would have been the time to go do it because they still got it. And I wish I had because now I feel like they're way past it and and it's too late for me. But anyway, I don't feel that way of watching Harrison Ford reprise his role. I don't feel like it's sad. I don't feel like they threw the old man a bone. I feel like he's still got it. Well, it was good to see him pull this off because do you remember, I think it was the Academy Awards where he did that presentation and like he mumbled through everything and you could not understand him. And we all said, what the hell happened to Harrison Ford? Right. So it was good to see that he just had a bad night. Yeah. Similar to Chevy Chase, who had a bad night during the SNL 40th anniversary. And you've since heard him speak and it's like, okay, we can breathe. He's fine. He just had a bad night. Oh, don't even get me started on Chevy Chase. I love the Kessel Run joke here. Yes. Where she's like, oh, he made the Kessel Run in 14 parsecs, and he's like, 12, 14. But boy, do they deliver on that. Yeah, they do. You get a whole movie and a ride. Yes. And then two rival gangs, uh, they attack the large ship as Han owes both a great deal of money uh, because he's smuggling Raftars. But... Uh, they do fight their way out of it, and they escape on the Falcon. Can I just say, and and it was a criticism I had of the movie then, and I still do now, how that Raftar, which is kind of like a big creature that's sort of like an octopus. Demogorgon slash Kraken-ish. How it did not kill Finn, we will never know. Because this thing was just grabbing people and eating them. And instead, he decides to grab Finn and drag him around the Millennium Falcon for about five minutes. Well, because he had Finn in the tentacles, I don't think it ever got to the mouth. I think if you if you bit, you know, it's not like a dog holding a toy in its mouth where he can carry it around without puncturing it. If you're in the mouth, you're going down. I mean, I guess. I I never really picked up on that because I just... You know, again, it's it's the return of Han, and it's it's great to see that him and Chewie are still up to their old tricks, and of course they're smuggling these things on board. Yeah. I love the fact that he's still a smuggler. Yeah. 
we then see the First Order's Starkiller base, which is a planet that has been converted into a weapon. We meet Supreme Leader Snoke and General Hux, who uses the weapon for the first time. Snoke also starts to doubt Kylo Ren and questions Ren about having his father, Han Solo, involved and whether that will complicate matters, but Ren assures him that it will not. Upon inspection of BB-8's map, Han concludes that the map which leads to, as I mentioned before, the whereabouts of Luke Skywalker, is missing a piece. And we also learn that Luke has gone into exile while his, uh, or when his apprentice, I should say, turned to the dark side. Now, we've basically figured out at this point that that apprentice was Kylo Ren because when we find out that Han Solo is his father... Let me ask you, when you found out that Kylo Ren was the son of Han Solo and therefore also the son of Princess Leia. Were you surprised? We should have prefaced this episode with spoilers, but I mean, I really would like to think that... We've gotten this far. The movie's already spoiled. No, I thought about it in the beginning and then I forgot to bring bring it up, but I mean, I hope everybody has seen, you know, Star Wars at this point. But anyway, um, no, I was not. I'm surprised they went for it again. Because we've already had that moment of, I am your father. So we've seen it before, but I mean, yes, granted, they twisted it because now the evil one is the son and Han is the one who has to deal with it. So I wasn't so surprised because I knew somebody had a lineage and it was not because I had read a spoiler. It's just that it would have made too much sense if Rey was somehow related to Luke Skywalker. Now, we still don't know up to this point what her background is. I'm hoping that we learn this sooner rather than later because they never really tell us, at least in this movie, what her background is. But I thought it would be too easy if she was a Skywalker. So I kind of like this twist because... She has Skywalker, well, not not her. Kylo Ren has Skywalker blood in him because he's got Leia's blood in him. But I do like the fact that they tied it back to Han Solo, though. Because I don't think anybody would have thought that it was Han and Leia. Even though we did see in the original trailer the Darth Vader helmet, that Kylo Ren was looking at. I think a lot of people just assumed, perhaps, because admittedly, I do not remember if he says grandfather in the trailer. And I might be wrong about that. But... I mean, he obviously says it in the the, film, but I don't... I don't don't think he said it in the trailer. No, I don't think they planted that much. Because I just remember so many people going, oh, well, the girl, because they didn't know what her name was, that's Luke Skywalker's daughter. So I like that they kind of threw us for a loop on this one. Yeah, I mean, I I guess out of those two scenarios, this one was less less expected than making Rey the lineage. But you know, that's not to say that she's not. We still don't know yet. My my thing is too, did we really need to hold on the mask because you've already established that this is Hans's kid. But well, I mean, that's the thing. You know it's Hans' son. 
but you don't know who with yet until he says right. grandfather. And then obviously, you know, I think it would have been more effective if they did the grandfather part first, because then you don't know if this is Luke or Leia's kid. Yeah, I'll give you that. So that's why it there wasn't that much shock value to find out that he's Han's kid. I'll give you that one. Um, they then fly to Taco Donna and they meet with Maz Kanata, who owns a cantina, and she, they're looking for help, and she assures them that they can get their help and that she will help in getting BB-8 back to the Resistance. Ray, meanwhile, uh, finds a lightsaber that once belonged to Luke and Anakin Skywalker, and after touching it, she sees flashbacks and images from her life that disturb her. She vows never to touch the saber again and flees into the woods, horrified by what she has seen, and Maz gives the saber to Finn. I love Maz. So do I. She kind of reminds me of an Edna Mode. And what's most impressive, too, is that's Lupita Nyong'o. Yeah. I don't know how she, like, aged her voice that much. Because she does kind of sound like a like a raspy old woman. Well, I mean, think about it. How many times do we sit there and watch Guardians of the Galaxy and we can't believe that Rocket is Bradley Cooper? I mean, it, still can't. It, talented actors and actresses are talented. You know, like they they know how to do they do, they do this for a living. They do, but I mean, Lupita Nyong'o, she's just got such a smooth voice, and to hear her just make it so crackly, it was just very impressive. I also love that especially now having been there, that her tavern reminds me so much of Galaxy's Edge. It does, but it also reminds me of Animal Kingdom a little bit too, where they have all those colorful banners. Yeah, and the architecture. Yeah. Um, and they're cooking that meat sort of reminds me of Ronto's Roasters. Now, of course, it's all totally different because that's Batu, Right. And we're not on Batu. But you can see where they did draw influences from visuals that are familiar to you if you've watched a Star Wars movie. And that's why it feels as, immer as immersive as it does. Absolutely. Other yeah. than the fact that the cast is great, you know, we've already discussed it at length. And if you didn't hear us talk about it, you can go back and listen to our trip report. We just did that a couple of weeks ago. Well, anyway. Later on, after Maz gives the saber to Finn, the First Order uses their Starkiller to destroy a planetary system that is a stronghold for the New Republic and the Resistance. And they then attack uh, Takodana as they search for BB-8. But Resistance X-Wings show up led by Poe Dameron, so we know that he's alive, to help fight them off. C-3PO and General Leia Organa, no longer princess, she is General Leia Organa, arrive and Han tells her that he has seen their son. Meanwhile, Ren captures Rey after learning that she has seen the map to Luke Skywalker and he brings her back to the Starkiller base. The First Order needed to destroy those planets. It needed to happen because, again, 
I had not quite bought into the first order. And and admittedly, upon first viewing, up to this point in time, I've still not totally bought into Kylo Ren. I liked his introduction when he shot up that village, but I was not 100% sold on him yet. I liked the fact that they went after this, and it wasn't just one planet they blew up like they do in A New Hope. It's multiple planets that are destroyed. This needed to happen. Well, it's like I said before. Yeah, you do kind of have to establish him on his own as an evil villain and not just the lineage of Darth Vader. Yeah. And, you know, I think this, we we started talking about it before, but I didn't want to get too far ahead. As far as the baby face thing, I think that really is juxtaposed well here against how evil he is because in this scene, you know, Leia's saying, bring our son home. So I think you've established that he's still young enough where he's still impressionable and there's a chance of saving him. And I think that's why you really have to put it in the sense of this is their kid because, you know, with Darth Vader, it was totally different seeing him as Anakin because the second trilogy was the backstory. And you got to give Lucas credit where credit's due. We had never seen storytelling like this where, you know, yes, they did decide to do a sequel, but you really, with that original trilogy of Star Wars, you didn't know that you were getting the second piece of it. Right. Until they released the second trilogy. As garbage as those movies are, they still tell a good story. It's still, not that there were any real loose ends in the original trilogy, but it plays into it perfectly. They're not reaching for storylines that aren't really there. Story-wise, it's actually a great trilogy. And like I said, you, you've you never, you didn't really see storytelling like that before. Right, and it's told co- completely out of order. Right, so when you see Anakin become conflicted, you already know what he's going to do. Here... You know, you know, there's no saving him here with Kylo Ren. They still give you that hope that he can be saved. And, you know, it is nice to see that relationship between Han and Leia, because, of course, there's the I love you, I know. And you do kind of think, especially because he's still out smuggling, that Han is the eternal bachelor. But like, there's still a little bit of hope that they're going to get their family back together. And that he'll retire from just being a scoundrel. Exactly. The chills that I got when you see General Leia, she will always be Princess Leia to me. And and she she is she's all of our princess. You know what I'm saying? Like we love you're a Star Wars fan. You just feel for Princess Leia and you embrace Carrie Fisher for the character that she brought to life. And that's what when she passed away, it's what made it so devastating because she was so young and she battled so many problems in her personal life and you know they're dealing with that when when the next Star Wars film came out so of course we don't know that that's going to happen when we see her here because she was still alive when this movie came out so I dare say that the chills and the goosebumps are even more so now 
than they were even the first time. I mean, maybe I can only speak for myself. I mean, it's different for me because, like I said, I wasn't as invested. I didn't grow up on this. But there's no denying that she is, you know, like the the, the cornerstone of these movies. She really is. And the fact that, you know, she started this when she was 19 years old. I mean, she was a kid. And she carries those movies. And still, when she's in a scene, in any scene that she's in in this movie, she carries the scenes. And she was happy to do it again. Yeah. When they found out that they were all going to reprise their roles, they were they were really on board with it. And again, you do get some comic relief here because when Chewie comes back and he's being tended to by the doctor, it's almost like it's a pediatrician. She's almost like patronizing him yeah. where he's talking and she's like, oh, you, you sound like you were very brave when she's trying <laughs> to patch him up. I just thought that it was good comic relief in and the comedy in these in in this film specifically. While I know it was a turnoff for a lot of people, I felt like it wasn't over the top and I felt like where they did put it in, it was necessary or it lightened the mood a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Well, anyway, while all that is going on, Kylo Ren has got Rey back on the base, as I said before. And he's trying to use the Force to read her mind. But as we learn, she is also one with the Force. And she resists his powers. And she then uses the Force to convince a stormtrooper to free her from her restraints, and let her free. While that's happening, Han, Chewie, and Finn have also gotten to the, va- uh, to the base, and they eventually do find Rey, and they begin to plant explosives. Han sees Kylo Ren, whose name we now find out is Ben. Obviously, he's named after Ben Kenobi and he tries to convince him that Snoke only wants him for his powers and that he should come home Ren lulls Han into a false sense of security before stabbing him with his lightsaber and letting him fall to his death and you know what I remember most about the now there's a lot to dissect here and we're going to talk about this scene in a minute all of it. But what stands out to me, when he plunges that lightsaber through Han Solo, the first time we saw this movie, and you have admittedly said, you were not 100% on the Star Wars train. You watched the movies, you knew enough about them. But when he stabbed Han Solo, you audibly gasped and put your hands over your face that's how i knew we got you that's how i knew we got you no and for as much as i was saying you know in the scene where han and leia are together and she's like go get our son and and you know you do hope that they're going to be able to pull him out of the dark side you know in this scene that there's no going back and it's almost predictable that he's going to kill him 
you still have a little bit of hope, but you you know what's going to happen. You know that there's no coming back from this. Yeah, I mean, this is the scene that makes the movie, and it's what makes Kylo Ren. If this is where Kylo Ren, for me, makes the turn. This is where he becomes the villain that you wanted him to be. And I remember saying, when he stabbed him and you gasped, I said, good. And that says a lot coming from me because I love Han Solo. But I wanted to see this happen. I wanted to, because I needed to believe Kylo Ren. This is where I believe Kylo Ren. See, and that's where, you know, even you said in the beginning where people weren't 100% on board with him. Aside from the fact that I think that Adam Driver is a very talented actor. To me, it's even the scene between him and Ray, where... It's so powerful. The both of them are amazing. I mean, yes, you have are. to think about like we know that they're using the force, but like to have to convey that to each other and you know that you've got two powerful forces here because that's the thing. Up until this point, Anakin, Darth, however you want to refer more so Anakin because in the second trilogy is when you really start to see him play with it and he yeah. becomes very conflicted. But you know, that was like his prophecy almost where he was going to be the most powerful and the struggle was going to be to get him to use that power for good, not evil. Here it's the same thing where Kylo Ren is the most powerful and he's using it for evil, but he has met his powerful match that's going to fight for good and he's not expecting it. And to me in this scene, you've got these two unstoppable forces up against each other and the actors both convey it like they have such a long history even though this is the second time they're on screen together the second time the characters are interacting and it's like these two are carrying the weight of the entire franchise right now and they've got just as much stock and just as much history as Han, Leia, or Luke. Kylo Ren describing Rey's dreams to her, they're eerie, they're creepy, but totally necessary because I agree with you. He pulls it off so well. I mean, this is one of the stronger scenes in the movie. I don't think it's the strongest, but I do believe that it is incredibly strong. And her standing up to the Force, the look of concern on his face, again, is where the powerful acting really stands out. No, and that's the point where I think if there's any hope of Kylo Ren being saved at all, it's because of Rey. I, there was a point where I thought she was going to be able to turn him. And you almost get this feel, like, I don't know, I, I got almost like a sibling vibe from them. Like, that's how much history they're conveying in this scene. Right. Um... Her using the force on the stormtrooper, again, it's great tongue-in-cheek, and it's a great cameo because that's Daniel Craig. Right. If you didn't know that, now you know. But it's so funny because she doesn't even believe herself at this point. And the first time she tries it, it doesn't work. Right. But I said it before. They found a way to pepper in humor where it was necessary, and you added a little bit of lightheartedness after what was a very powerful scene moving into it just like when <clears throat> um han and finn and chewie are talking about having to rescue ray 
And Han says to Finn, we don't even, I think he said something to the effect, uh, the effect of, we don't even know where she is or we don't even know where to start, whatever it was. And Finn goes, we'll use the force. <laughs> yeah. And Han goes, that's not how the force works. <laughs> yeah. It's it's funny because he's telling the truth and he's sort of exacerbated by Finn in totality at this point because he's kind of thinned out by this point. And, and it's still just so in character for him. Totally. Um, But everything that leads up to that moment where he does kill him it's it's also powerful. Let me ask you something, though, as the resident Star Wars aficionado. Mm-hmm. Why do none of these ships have handrails? Why does it always have to be this plank at this great height where one of them falls? I don't know. I've never thought to question it. That's the only thing that I don't like about this scene. For as much as there is the shock value and fine, I audibly gasped. It's derivative because we've seen it before. I mean, again, it it is consistent with what you've seen in the other movies. Whether you want it to be or not, it's something that's familiar in terms of the architecture of these Death Stars and Star Killers. And it's from as familiar as these awful transitional wipes. I'm fine with all of them. Well, after Han Solo falls to his death, uh, Chewie shoots and wounds Kylo Ren, and then he sets off the explosives. After Rey, um, well, I'm jumping ahead. He sets off the explosives, and then they they take off into the woods. This is Finn and Rey. Kylo Ren follows them in, and he starts a lightsaber battle with... Finn, because Finn has this lightsaber that Maz had given him, and he knocks him out. He kind of slices him up the back and renders him unconscious. I didn't know at first whether he would recover from that. Um, It turns out he was just knocked out. And after Rey bests him in a lightsaber battle, the planet begins to break apart, and Ren escapes to go uh, back to Snoke, Because Snoke has said to General Hux, retrieve him, we have to complete his training. And I think that this lightsaber fight is actually pretty good. Again, I don't know where people are doubting Adam Driver, because I thought he did awesome with it. I thought Daisy Ridley was really good in this, too. She was really good, too. But we also, we should have mentioned this, we did start watching the first two trilogies not just as a lead in for our reviews, but also just leading up to the new one coming out. And I had said, I thought really Hayden Christensen and uh, Liam Neeson were probably the two best with the lightsabers. To me, it took Ewan McGregor two movies to really get a grasp on it. If there's one thing that Hayden Christensen did really well, other than look like a creep, <laughs> It's that he was very good with the physical stunts in those movies. Yeah, I will he, re- give him he really was. But I think Adam Driver got it on his first try here. Yeah, I think so. Daisy Ridley was good, but I think he was better. I think Kylo Ren trying to recruit her, saying she needs a teacher. I think that's very telling of the character. I think he knows that he can't best her. 
And I think he's kind of got this, if you can't beat him, join him thing. But obviously he's not looking to flip and leave the dark side. It's also great foreshadowing for what we are to see in the two films that come out after this one did. Right. I also thought it was interesting that he has not yet completed his training, yet he's already looking to take on an apprentice. Which you saw a little bit with Obi-Wan Kenobi. I mean, he was basically done, but he had no more Gwaigon Jin because Jin was killed by Darth Maul, and then he took on Anakin Skywalker. Right. So again, similarities, but without being a, a total pull. Like, even I had to dig a little bit for that one, but it's that familiarity that this movie did so well in, you know, for lack of a better term, pandering to the fanboys. I also like the separation that happens here as the planet begins to break apart. And it's almost like there's a fault line and Kylo Ren and Ray get separated and you're either on one side or you're on the other completely symbolic. Yeah, it's on the nose, but it's just so well done. Yeah. It's not cheesy though. At least I don't think it is. No, it's definitely not cheesy. I mean, but it's the metaphor is very obvious, but it's still so well done. It's like, yeah, I can overlook that. So after they're separated, Chewie, Ray, and the injured Finn escape on the Falcon just before the Star Killer explodes. Back on Dakar, they are reunited with a grieving Leia, and R two D two awakens to complete BB eight's map leading to Luke. Ray and Chewie fly the Falcon to Octo, where Luke is hiding. Ray finds him and shows him the lightsaber. I love the fact that R2 wakes up and combines the map with BB-8 because I felt that, again, in terms of symbolism, that really did bridge the generational gap. I was going to say, yes, speaking of symbolism... Again, obvious, but it was a great it, it was a great puzzle piece. I think that the island that Luke is on, I believe they shot that in Ireland. It's scenically beautiful. It's either off the coast of England or Ireland, I'm not sure which, but um yeah, I, I wanna know the location scout that found that one. When he comes on screen for the first time. Forget chills. I melted into a puddle. I melted into my seat. The hand, too. E even, like, just yes. seeing that was so striking. What amazes me about this scene is how powerful it is. We know Luke Skywalker is coming. It's a quick scene. It's at the very end of the movie. There is not one spoken word between Mark Hamill or Daisy Ridley. But it's in the eyes. It's in the eyes for both of them. It's an incredibly powerful scene. Not that Daisy Ridley wasn't incredible throughout the rest of this film. You know, and she really did match well against Adam Driver in those scenes where they're using the force. But this is what puts her at powerhouse status. Where 
she seeks him down and the look on her face is just like, I'm not going to ask. You have to do this. And then when he's not moving, she pleads with him. Yeah. All in the eyes. It's one look. And his look is, I knew this day would come. Yep. Let's talk about the music. Yeah, you can't talk about Star Wars and not mention score. Yeah, that incredible John Williams score that we've been listening to for 40 plus years. We continue to listen to it. Everything about it. Again, harkens back to the 77 trilogy, harkens back to the late 90s trilogy. We have it now. You knew it was coming, but even though you know it's coming, it doesn't make it any less special. Yeah, the score is as iconic as any single one of these characters. I dare even say, I don't know that the characters are iconic without their score. I mean, like when you think of Darth Vader, it just goes hand in hand. I don't know that Darth Vader is as scary without that score behind him. Jaws. Exactly. Indiana Jones. Well, I mean, it's all the same guy. It's all John Williams. You know what's funny, though, is that I think years from now, some of these movies, like the second trilogy, for example, are not going to have as much staying power as the original. And I think that these, you know, this third trilogy is probably going to go down in the books along with the first one. But regardless, this score is always going to be here. And I feel like the score is going to outlive the movies. It's just so iconic. I would agree with that. I mean, I saw the score uh, performed live at Nassau Coliseum and Anthony Daniels, who, as we all know, is the voice of C-3PO, was like the MC for the event. That's right. I watched that show. John Williams thing. Um, It was a whole tour. Yeah, I I think that you're right. Um, I mean, like, you know, years from now where maybe people that were raised on this new trilogy, maybe they can't get into the original or maybe, you know, they don't find years from now, they don't find the visuals as interesting and they just don't relate to them. I feel like where. In, in a galaxy far, far away where they don't appreciate the films for the stories or the visuals anymore, they're going to appreciate the music. And, you know, what's interesting is that when they brought on J.J. Abrams as the director, um, he's worked on almost every other project that he's done with Michael Giacchino. I hope I'm saying that right. So he, he was going to bring him on to do this. And the guy's like, nah, I'm not messing with the Star Wars score. I mean, I, th- I think that that's, that's an incredible amount of pressure for anybody. And when, when it's so iconic, I mean, why would... You also got to have some wanna, set of cojones well, to think you, that you're going to come up with something why, better. Yeah, why would you even want to try? Yeah, no. You're setting yourself up for ridicule. Because let's be real about something. If he would have written the score for this movie and if it hadn't have worked... Do you think he would have gotten another job in no. Hollywood? No, no way. J.J. Abrams did throw him in as a stormtrooper, though. Yeah, well, they, they had quite a few. Simon Pegg had a cameo in this movie. I mentioned Daniel Craig. Um, yeah, a g- good idea. It's stick with John Williams. Yeah. <laughs> you, you made a right decision. I think J.J. Abrams, in my opinion, made a lot of correct decisions in this movie. I think that 
this is a great reintroduction to the Star Wars universe. I think it's a strong start to what is going to be the final chapter of the Skywalker saga. And it's without question a much stronger start to a trilogy than episode one. Oh, Lord. Why, so you say that? Yeah, well, (laughs) but this movie, I think, calmed a lot of people down. For the skeptics and those, and this movie has still has its skeptics and people who don't like it because they're not supposed to, and they, you know, they have to go wash their hands of the Cheeto dust. Um, (laughs) But I I get where some people don't love every bit of this movie, but I don't see where somebody just out and out dislikes it. I mean, there's something for everybody. There's something for somebody like me who was kind of lukewarm on Star Wars that really gave me something to gravitate towards. I think, you know, you said it before, there's enough pandering to the hardcore fans. And I think even the purists who were afraid of what was going to happen with Disney can't deny that they made a great movie. Well, the Internet says otherwise. They, they'll still argue with you. I, I don't agree with them. But they will still argue with you on this because they're supposed to argue with you. But But meanwhile, hey, the golden boy, Golden George, is the same director that made episode one. You're going to tell me episode one is a better movie than this? Yeah, really. I'll, I'll give you something to cry about. Yeah. Go watch that again. But some people will argue this fact, and I don't quite understand it. No, honestly, I think this was also probably one of the things that turned me off of Star Wars was, you know, there's a fan base and then there are Star Wars fans. Like, they were the original fandomonium, the original internet trolls, as you put it with the Cheeto dust. You know, they were the ones on the message boards. They were the ones who created this, this like, underground cult discussion so I feel like that is part of what turned me off honestly to a point where like I have been dreading when we had to do this episode because I knew I was gonna have to speak to Star Wars and you know there was a big part of me that didn't want to do it just because like I said I've I've been through film school I've heard all the arguments before you know I I was just kind of over it well Guess what? <laughs> That's too bad. We still got another one. You still got another one. And then another one. And then another one. And then another one. No, but I I will say it's nice to finally be on board and appreciate what all of the fuss is about. Well, if uh, any of you film school uh, alumni of Jackie's want to remind her of... Um, Oh, there goes the lightsaber. No, ow, ow, ow. You know, that's that's an expensive collectible you just hit me with. I said it was going to happen before the show was over. Now you've upset the dog. Well, you know what? Now I invite you people from film school. You've upset me. At Monoreal Radio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. All right. Have at her. Guys, she just took a Savi's Workshop lightsaber. Cheeto boys and hit me with it. Hit me with it. 
I promised I would before the episode was over. So thank you for giving me the reason to. So let's talk about some other Star Wars. What's the difference between me playing with the lightsaber and you standing on a bed in the hotel in Disney waving it around? Because I waved it around. I didn't strike anything with it that would have caused damage to it. I didn't cause damage. Not that you know of. You know now after we're done, I'm going to have to plug it in and I'm going to have to wave it around to make sure that everything's still working properly. You're lucky I checked that I didn't hit you with the hilt end of it because the thought crossed my mind. That's nice. Star Wars news this week. The long-awaited opening of Rise of the Resistance, at least at Walt Disney World, happened. And there are two things that are consistent with Rise of the Resistance. Neither one of them are any surprise at this point. It's the greatest attraction that his, uh, that Disney has ever released in its history, and it breaks down a lot. Those are the two things I have heard about consistently. You know what's funny, though? I feel like I still don't even know too much about it because every video I've seen, people come off and they're like, it's the best ride ever, and then they're speechless. And I'm kind of happy about that because it's going to be a while until we get a chance to ride it. We were just at Disney World a month ago. It wasn't open yet. We're not going back anytime soon. So it's going to be a while till we get to ride it. And I don't want anything spoiled. But it did open up. When it does operate, it's getting great reviews. But Disney has been really good about taking care of people who are cheated out of their ride. Because they're giving away boarding passes upon entering MGM. And if you don't get a boarding pass, they say, hey, sorry, they're gone. But for those who had a boarding pass, at least over the weekend, and the ride broke down and they could no longer accommodate those parties, they got a fast pass for the next day. Plus, they were given a complimentary park hopper ticket. Well, you have to. I mean... Yes, kudos on Disney for doing the right thing, but the bigger issue here is that if you have the Magic Your Way ticket, that is four parks and you do one per day. So it's the base ticket. Yes, if you've already burned your MGM day and you're giving them another pass to go on, it's like, great, here you go, but you'll be in Epcot that day. Right. You, you have to give them the hopper so they can get back in the park. It's the right thing to do, but you know, good looking out at least. We also got a trailer drop this week for the uh, Ghostbusters. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. We already talked about that. The Mulan live action retelling. You know that Disney cannot acquire Ghostbusters, correct? Do you know that they did at one point for the parks? This is a true story. Before Universal Studios, and it's funny because I used to say to you, After Universal Studios had gotten rid of the Ghostbusters live show, when they had talked about doing a refurbishment of the great movie ride, and I might have even said it on this show because we didn't want to see the great movie ride go away. I had always said they could put a scene from Ghostbusters in the great movie ride if they were going to refurb great movie ride. Well, it turns out that they had acquired the rights to Ghostbusters before MGM opened. And they were going to put it in the great movie ride. The Gozer scene on top of Dana Barrett's building was going to be in the great movie ride. 
Oh my god, you would have really rioted when they closed that down if they incorporated and that. And it just it never happened and then it went to Universal and then Six Flags was going to do something with it and it didn't happen and now Universal has it back again. But I just want to make sure you know because we're not ever going to get to review it on the show. It's funny though. Oh my god. Because people it it won't happen now, but people made the joke when Spider-Man was going to be a Sony exclusive and Marvel Studios was no longer going to have the right to make those Tom Holland Marvel films earlier this summer before, of course, they worked it out. Before they saw the light, yeah. There was, and I, I think it was never anything more than a rumor, but there was a rumor, maybe a wish, that Disney would just buy Sony. Oh, my God. And if they would have bought Sony, they would have acquired Ghost Core, which means they would have acquired Ghostbusters. Do I need to get this lightsaber again? No, because it didn't happen. Anyway, the Mulan. trailer that we did get that we care about is Mulan. Okay, but let's watch your language, what we <laughs> care about. I care about it for the sake of the show, and that's about as far as that goes. Admittedly, I'm not a tremendous Mulan fan. No, you you've said as much. You just weren't that into it. Um, and I watched it a couple of years ago, and I still couldn't do it. But I will say, um, I think, from what I've seen at least, I think I'm going to like this live action film far more than the animated movie. Visually, it's very impressive so far from what we see in the trailer. The only thing I'm not loving. Is that, you know, you hear the instrumental for Reflection, but my favorite song in Mulan is I'll Make a Man Out of You. And in this new trailer, we do see that they use the line, but no song. So it wouldn't surprise me if in this day and age they cut the whole thing. It's my understanding, and I could be wrong about this. It's my understanding that this is not going to be a musical, though. I don't know. I kind of feel like if Lion King was a musical, why wouldn't this be? Because Lion King is a musical. I don't look at as at Mulan as a musical. I mean, there's not as many songs, but I mean, you've still got your leading lady singing about, you know, what she wants in her life. I guess you still got a I crowd just, pleaser song. You, I, you you still have all the elements there. Yeah, but I can't tell you what any of those songs are. If they came on right now, I couldn't tell you that they came from that film. Mostly because I'm just not in love with that movie. And maybe that's where, I'm not going to call it a bias, but where my opinion comes that it's not a musical because it's not a bare necessities. It's not... Um, it's not The Lion King, it's not Little Mermaid, it's not Aladdin. No, and you're right, and the big song that came out of it was Reflection, but more people knew it because it was Christina Aguilera who sang it, right. and she got the radio hit. Well, again, we want to know what you guys have to say. Are you excited about the Mulan trailer? Do you think it's a musical? Do you want it to be a musical? Do you want to be made a man out of? You can let us know on... <laughs> Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. 
Thank you all so much again for joining us this week. We mentioned it before. We were at Disney World a couple of weeks ago. We did not get to ride Rise of the Resistance. However, if you do want to ride Rise of the Resistance, I do have one question for you, and that's who you're going to call. Well, I'm not going to give my phone number out on the podcast, but you can get in touch with me either through our social media or you can shoot me an email at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I at MagicalVacationPlanner.com, and I will help you plan your trip. Speaking of trips, we were down there about a month ago and we put together a little prize pack that had some park maps and a limited edition Christmas pin, but we have a surprise. We have a second prize pack. Yep. I'm very excited to announce this one. I had said for those who entered in the last contest and didn't win, don't worry, you're going to get another shot. We have a second prize pack. Consisting of park maps, because that is a standard. As well as the Blue Disney Parks bag. Of course. Which we all have a thousand of and never get rid of them, because what if they change the bag one day? We also have coasters from Oga's Cantina. Which I stole immediately because let me tell you, Disney, bless their hearts, is trying to be environmentally conscious. They are environmentally conscious and they have new coasters everywhere. And the second they get wet, they start to like decompose and break down. So I grabbed these off the bar for you. Yeah, so don't use these. You can just display They're them. They're nice display items, but don't actually use them for what they are supposed to be functional for. And we also have a Galaxy's Edge pin. Boom. That we have put out into the world for you to obtain. So, similar to the last contest, um, you can go ahead and give us a rating and a review on Facebook or on your podcast platform of choice. If you've already done that for the first contest, we will carry it over and enter you in this new contest. Or if you reviewed us on one platform and you want to head over to our Facebook or vice versa, if you did the Facebook and you didn't do a podcast platform, we will count your new entry. Um, But either way, please give us a review. I hate when podcasts solicit for reviews, but... I will say this, the more ratings that you have and the higher your ratings are, the more credibility it gives you. And one of the things that we would really love to do, especially moving into 2020, is get some more interviews. Um, And they do a lot of publicists and a lot of people do look at your iTunes ratings. So we want to get those numbers up so that we can reach more Disney fans and get even more guests on the show. Right, because we're committed to growing the podcast. We want to give you guys more episodes. We've gotten great feedback on the bonus episodes and on the trip reports, as well as our regular episodes. And we want to give more of that to you. So please, give us the rating, give us the like, share on your social media. It's grassroots, man. Every little bit helps. Especially because I do think that people are going to really want this prize pack. So if you have a Disney fan or a Star Wars fan and you think they want this prize pack, let them know about it. Because it will be dogs and cats living together. (laughs) That's hysteria. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.